Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen, and we are so excited to be back with you guys discussing best practices and just joining together to help orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. Phil, how was your summer? I feel like I haven't seen or talked to you in so, so long. Tell me about your summer. Yeah, it's been a, you know, as, as usual, it's been a, a crazy one when you got five kids and, you know, you got a family and wife who you, you want to hang out with each other as much as possible. Um, it's, it was great. We had, a, we had some travel that we did together, a family camp that we do every year, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and, and it was a special, special treat too, because one of my, uh, really good friends and my former pastor, uh, was the speaker at the family camp. So that was great too. Um, you know, and I'm, I am super excited for this, uh, refugee crisis series that we're, that we're kicking off today. Um, I know that, uh, the interviews I was able to do for this, uh, just blew me away. Um, and I can't wait to share them with, with you all out there. Uh, today we'll start with Krish Kandaya and I'll tell you more about him in a little bit. We got, uh, folks from World Relief, uh, including Scott Arbiter, the president. We got a couple fo- folks from World Vision with Steve Haas and Khalil Slayman. We got Jeremy Courtney and Mark and Jan Foreman and, and some, it's just some other people that I know you'll, you're going to learn so much from. And the reason I know that is because I have learned a ton from them. And, uh, so this is such a huge, important issue that, uh, that we're getting, that we're going to be able to share with everybody. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, I've been starting some consulting projects, uh, with Providence. And, uh, on that note, I know a lot of people have asked me, you know, how do we do this and what, what kind of funds this podcast? And I'll just tell you that, you know, Providence World, the organization I work for, um, we're the ones who kind of have, have started this initiative and for funding the initiative. So if you if you want to be a part of that and help fund this podcast, uh, you can do that. Just uh, just uh, check it out at providenceworld.com and you can you can do that. We don't usually talk about it, um, but that is that is how we're how we're making this thing happen. That's what's that's what's keeping it going. Um, and so you know, for the summer, it was it was really really good. Definitely crazy from the standpoint of doing some consulting uh, that was not planned before the at the beginning of the summer, and just things have come up. Um, particularly, one of them in Iraq, which is really exciting. That uh, there are um, some things that are going on that are really trying to to pursue and push best practices um, in the midst of what is not so exciting and just this really difficult conflict that is going on with ISIS with these different wars um, uh, going on in the region such a big part of the refugee crisis but it's it's all kind of coming together Uh, finished the book proposal for the book that we've been talking about here on the show and so got that out to some publishers so I'm hoping hoping that that gets out to the to everyone out there listening Uh, hopefully that will be coming in the next uh 12 to 18 months, uh, actually in Amazon and, and in bookstores. So, so yeah, how about you, Karen? I mean, I, I know that that was, that was kind of a mouthful and there's so much more to it behind every one of those little things, but I'm sure the same goes for you, but I know you had a pretty fun and, uh, exciting summer as well. 
Yeah, our summer very similarly was jam-packed with all kinds of stuff. Um, we've got a ton of kids in our house too. We've got four kids and um, our kiddos, we often have the hashtag of toddlers and teenagers. So we have been prepping this summer for our big kids to enter into high school and our little kids to start kindergarten. And so we've got quite a gap in there that has kept us busy with fun activities, but also just a lot of prep stuff. You know how it is with just kids starting high school and fun, but also complicated and really challenging things for me as a parent to help me to remember I need to step up my game (laughs) and knowing about my kids' requirements and expectations for um, high school, which apparently is no joke. Um, I also got to do some uh, really great things this this summer related to a big piece of my um, just heart and and passion for getting to do the work that I get to do with my um, career. So I spent some time in East Africa where our family used to live and was able to reconnect with not only some of my wonderful friends, but then also getting to do some consultation on the ground related to member care and leadership training and had a really amazing opportunity and privilege to um, kind of watch uh, an organization, a ministry transition um, to being fully um, in-country led, completely Ugandan led with a Ugandan board and Ugandan executive director. And yeah, it was just a really powerful um, opportunity to have just you know a little tiny, tiny part of. I had nothing to do with the transition, but just being able to um, provide some consultation related to member care and um, trauma-informed practices. So that was really great. Um, And then also, you know, I think everyone, if you listen, know that I just have a small private practice here in Louisville. And so I keep busy with those things, getting to um, help children and teenagers and families um, who've experienced uh, trauma here in the greater Louisville area. So between family and and travel and um, work stuff, and then a little bit of fun stuff too. It's been (laughs) a busy but really really wonderful summer all around yeah that's great and I I know everyone out there uh, you know if if you want to be a real part of our lives please be praying for us I know we got a lot going on particularly with the uh, kiddos starting uh, school back into school we both now have high schoolers which is just crazy how fast time goes. And I know that people out there, you know, I, I, I know that the breadth of our, our listening audience out there, you guys have kids of all ages and you're doing the same, the same dance, you know? And so we're all wanting to do it together. And I just, you know, we're praying for you guys. I pray that you pray for us and, and we can do this together. So, um, as, as I know, all, you know, there, there were also some, some difficulties, some warfare, some different things going on in our lives. Um, so I, I just, I value, I covet your prayers and I know Karen does the same. So, so thanks yeah, in advance. Absolutely. Um, but with that, you know, I, I uh, we want to get to this because as I, as I mentioned, kind of in a little intro to the intro, um, we, we got a great lineup. Uh, for this for this refugee crisis, this was something that Karen and I were talking about. We're talking about with some advisors, and saying, you know, what what do we need to do? Like, really, that's that's pressing issues. And the refugee crisis just kept coming up um, at conferences and conversations. And and what do we do? How can we really engage this 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 crisis that is probably the you know the, the, it's been described and dubbed as the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. Um, and you know, the more I look into it, the more I see that that's, you know, it's, if it's not true 
you know, from a verifiable standpoint, it definitely seems like it, it absolutely is. There are so many issues implicated, so many orphan and vulnerable children um, resulting from this. Um, and it's just something that we really need to understand better. I'm seeking to, I'm learning more and more. And so the, the, for this first interview, I wanted to get a guy um, to, who was able to share from a position that he has been working in uh, orphan care for, for the last few years. He's a foster carer. He started an organization called Home for Good in the UK. Um, he, he's also done so many other things uh, from the standpoint of consulting with different people. He's provided theological strategic consultancy to World Vision UK, Baptist Union, Redcliffe College, Bible Society. He holds degrees in chemistry, missiology, and theology. He's got a PhD from King Collins London, King's College London. He was the, uh, the head of the Evangelical Alliance in the UK. Uh, Chris is a guy who does so many different things. He's speaking regularly. He's been a radio broadcaster. He still does that. Um, I don't know how in the world he finds time to just be at home and uh, read a book that he talks about all the time, reading different books. But he's also written several. And one of the books we talk about is God is Stranger, which just came out in the UK and is going to be uh, released in the US in December. And so it's, it's really talking about a lot of the issues here in the, in the refugee crisis. So I wanted Chris to be able to talk about the interconnectedness of all this work that we're doing in, the, in what may, may be seen traditionally as the orphan care space and how all these issues are implicated with this refugee crisis. And so Chris does a great job of that and more in this interview. And you are, you are definitely in for a treat. Now, I'm just going to tell you, we, we pick up in the middle of the interview because I've also talked to him about some other things, about Home for Good and some other things that we will definitely get to you at a later date. But we wanted to get this uh, conversation about the, the refugee crisis to you as part of this. And I thought no better way to kick off this series than with uh, Krishkin Daya. So here it goes. In your new book, God is Stranger, um, which will be has just recently come out in the UK and will be coming out in the US uh, in in the in the future, but uh, you you talked about how with your educational pedigree, which is is pretty large, uh, long list of of places you've been educated and things you've done and churches you've worked in. It's you know you you talked about how you've really never been taught the love for the stranger, oppressed, poor, vulnerable in that education. Um, I think that goes to one of the issues I think we have in our church, which is I think a lot of churches lack this thing that is critical to the gospels, critical to the Bible, um, lack it being part of the mm. DNA of the church. Um, do you agree with that, first of all? And then secondly, how do you think we can get churches more you know, deeply understanding this, this call, the fact that this is the core of God's heart and the fact that God is calling each of us to do this work? Yeah, and that's a great question, Phil. I, I think as I travel around, there are different tribes of the church. Um, and there are certainly tribes of the church that are really interested in uh, love for your neighbor, um, love for the outsider, welcoming the stranger. Uh, but that's often at the expense of helping people get connected with God. So we're great at social justice. We're not so good at, at evangelism. Mm. Uh, my tribe that I grew up in was really passionate about um, helping people reconnect with God through evangelism and so we'd run all sorts of events and you know we'd put on special lunch bars or debates or uh, bible studies or courses all trying to help people get connected with god and 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 i think that's wonderful 
it's, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to help people um, find a relationship with God through evangelism. Um, but um, what happened to me was I was taught a way of reading the Bible that excluded um, most of the Old Testament Actually, most of the Gospels, you could almost summarize what I was taught about the Bible in four verses. Um, we, we call it the Roman road over here. That, you know, <laughs> the, the most important thing to know is Romans uh, 3.23. You know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and the second most important verse is Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, and, you know, there's Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Romans 10.9, you know, if you confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart that Christ the Lord, you'll be saved. And thinking that I was taught that that was the gospel and everything else in the Bible really was kind of secondary or even unimportant. Um, but do you notice that Roman road has nothing to say about our responsibility for our neighbor, the stranger, the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan? Um, it's almost like um, the gospel is a get out of hell free card. It's a life jacket to rescue your soul. Um, and I think I was given a very distorted picture of what the gospel is, which actually was sub biblical. It doesn't cover enough of the Bible um, to say that it's orthodox. So interestingly, my gospel I just recounted there doesn't talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's actually not Trinitarian, which is interesting because for for most confessions of Christian faith, whether you're Orthodox, Catholic or um, Protestant, you know, believing in the Trinity is an absolutely essential doctrine. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not there. So, you know, what, what I what I try to do in this book, God is Stranger, is to go back again and read the Bible um, through a bigger lens. Um, and particularly looking at the bits of the Bible that we don't normally read, the awkward bits. Um, I don't know about you, but I was, I was given a highlighter pen quite early in my Christian discipleship. And the, the, the implied idea would be that you would highlight the useful bits of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what that we were supposed to be thinking about the unhighlighted parts of the Bible. You know, they, they were the kind of dodgy bits, the off limits bits. Um, and the highlighted bits of the Bible are normally about me, you know, that, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's a wonderful truth from Psalm 139. Um, but the unhighlighted bits of the Bible are normally the bits that have to do with other people. Um, so, you know, the God that says, you know, welcome the widow, the orphan and the stranger, the poor you will always have uh, among you often remain unhighlighted for most people. And um, so this book is really trying to investigate um, the unhighlighted parts of the Bible. Um, and, and I guess one of the really frightening parts of the Bible that came to the fore as I, as I studied um, for this book um, was some of the times when God talks about strangers. And I'll just give you two, um, you know, the book's a lot longer than this, but two really scary passages. Uh, so both from Matthew's gospel. Uh, one is when Jesus says, um, on the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast demons out in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And I'm thinking, okay, those are pretty, you know, wherever people are that are listening on the kind of charismatic scale, um, exercising demons and um, prophecy, they're, they're pretty kind of high on the kind of miraculous list. Mm -hmm. So you'd have thought if people were exercising those kind of spiritual gifts, um, they could be pretty confident about their relationship with God. But Jesus says, look, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And he will say, get away from me. I never knew you. In other words, despite all of this 
churchy activity they were still strangers to jesus that's pretty frightening Mm -hmm. and the parallel passage is in matthew 25 um where we all know this parable it's strange how little impact it has on our discipleship but um at the end of time jesus will separate the sheep from the goats Mm -hmm. and uh, he will say to the righteous he will say you know welcome to eternal life um i was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty you gave me something to drink Uh, i was naked and you clothed me i was a stranger and you welcomed me in and the righteous say well jesus we don't remember don't remember welcoming you What, what, what do you mean Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Uh, And the flip side of that was with the wicked. He says, get away from me, depart. And this is controversial, depart to eternal punishment because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. And so, you know, we have to be really careful here. Jesus is not arguing that we are saved by our good works. I'm a firm believer that we are saved by faith. But the the indicator of whether we really have saving faith is not just how many times we turn up at church, how strongly we sing, or even our doctrinal confession, important as those things are, it must work its way out. Our confession of faith must work its way out in terms of actual practical care for those that are most in need. And that's the really challenging part of Matthew 25. Mm -hmm. And nobody really taught me that. And so this book is an attempt to try and help a new audience hear again the challenge the excitement, the mystery, the adventure that Jesus calls us on to invest our lives into the most vulnerable. Yeah, no, and it, and it is done in a fantastic way. And, and as you said, there's a whole lot more. And we'll get into um, really the, the one of the chapters here in a few minutes. Um, before we do, I mean, basically what, what you're talking about there, and it's not really what the, 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 the book talks about all the time, but it's a big part of what the book is talking about. And it's really the the combination of word and deed. It's really that tension between what a lot of people, I remember me growing up too, it was similar. It was Romans, you know, faith and grace, you know, by mm. grace you shall be saved, right? And we forget the, you know, yeah. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are what were preached most of the time and two ten was forgotten. And in fact, it was, you know, where it says, right. you know, we are created for good works that Christ prepared for us beforehand, right. right? You know, God prepared for us beforehand. And James was always this kind of, ugly stepchild book where we're talking about, well, you know, it doesn't quite make sense because it's talking about works, right? And so it's that word indeed tension that Jesus talks about all the time and it's throughout scripture. How would you, and I know you work with churches all the time and you may not have a great answer for this, but I imagine you'll have something that's better than what I'd have. So how would you encourage our audience when we're talking about whether it's a church that, as you said, is focused almost all on word or all on deed, which unfortunately it mm. tends to be that way, as you said, how would you encourage them yeah. to see the other side and really incorporate it into, again, the church's DNA, the church's, you know, how they, how they preach, how they teach and how they celebrate in their congregations? Well, I think the answer is relatively simple. I think we need to get a bigger grip of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many of our problems come from a selective reading of scripture. So, you know, wh- when I was taught the gospel was just four verses from Romans, you think, whoa, wh- what did we miss out from Romans? Um, the, Ro- the, the, mm-hmm. the book of Romans or the letter to the Roman church um, actually has a lot to say about A, the work of the Holy Spirit, the new creation, um, the, the role of the church, our responsibility to government. Um, it has a lot to say about 
um, our own adoption into God's family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if if you only take selective proof texts and that's your grid, whether you're doing that from a, a deeds only church or a word only church, so you've lost you've lost something. Um, and I'm passionate that we need to recover a whole bar. Bible, but one of the ways we can do that is by recovering a whole church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I deliberately try to make friends across some of the denominational tribal boundaries mm-hmm. because actually they can bring a challenge to me. I can get stuck in an echo chamber where I only hear people that agree with me. And sometimes you need to hear the bits that you find uncomfortable. So I often had friends that would say to me, Chris, you know, you're, you're great at Romans, but you know, what about the Gospels or, you know, what about the book of Isaiah or, you know, what about Deuteronomy? I thought you, I thought you Christians believe that all scripture is God breathed. And so um, bridging between some of those different tribes can be really good for personal spiritual development, but also um, at a kind of macro level, how we as a church capture a whole picture of the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great way to kind of transition into the book a little bit deeper. Um, as we said, the, the book is called God is Stranger, and it's really kind of a double entendre, too, that God is often a stranger to us, but he also works in strange ways a lot of times. And and uh, and so I think one of the things that it focuses a lot on is the refugee crisis that our world is facing today, really our role. And and I'd like you to speak to kind of the refugee crisis, um, but, but specifically how it's interconnected with, you know, the orphan and vulnerable children and the crisis that, that's surrounding uh, that um, in our world today? Yeah, great question, Phil. So um, let me take you on a, a little bit of a journey. Um, so in 2015, um, our nation, the United Kingdom, was very clear that we were not going to receive any refugees coming from Syria. We, we would, If there had been a, a drawbridge, we would have pulled it up. The island of the United Kingdom was going to be separate from mainland continental Europe, and it was someone else's problem. Um, and then in September, um, many, many people around the world saw this picture uh, of a little boy, a three-year-old boy, Island Kurdi, uh, who drowned um, with most of the members of his family. Only his father survived um, a short crossing across the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and that picture of a little boy dead on a beach wearing his red T-shirt and his blue shorts really struck a chord. I think it had the same impact in Europe um, as that picture, many uh, Americans are a member of that little eight-year-old girl running away from a napalm attack um, in Vietnam. And that picture had a huge impact in the US and, and wider afield on the Vietnam conflict. So this little picture of a little boy had, a, had an impact in the UK. Um, and we um, we heard our, our Prime Minister, David Cameron, say that... Um, we, the UK, were going to receive 20,000 refugees and the focus was going to be on refugee children and unaccompanied asylum seekers. And um, they were going to come over five years, but 20,000. We thought, wow, where where are we going to find the, the families to be able to care for these children? Because I'm a firm believer that, that families are the best place for vulnerable children to flourish. It shouldn't be institutional care. It should be families wherever possible. If my own children had to go and live somewhere else because they, we were no longer able, my wife and I were no longer able to care for them, there is no way I want them in an orphanage. There is no way I want them in a children's village. I want them in a family. Mm-hmm. And so if that's what I want for my own kids that's what i'd want for refugee children fleeing conflict and so we started a little campaign and by campaign i mean we posted a facebook message <laughs> uh, with a web form attached and we did it at 
Friday night at 9.30, which anyone who knows anything about social media is a terrible time <laughs> to launch anything. And we thought, you know, oh, a good campaign target would be 150 people. We've got 150 people interested. That would be amazing. We had 150 responses in an hour. Wow. And by Saturday morning, we'd had 1,200 people had given mm. us their names, their addresses, their phone numbers, saying they wanted to start the process to be assessed to be foster parents for wow. refugee kids. By Sunday morning, it was two and a half thousand. By Monday morning, it was eight thousand. And suddenly, we're, we're, that's a politically significant number. And our tiny little charity, Home for Good, is invited to uh, the Home Office for a roundtable crisis discussion about how the UK can respond to this refugee um, crisis. And you know, we're there with the big boys. You know, UNICEF, Save the Children, UNHCR, and, and, and me, <laughs> and, and and representing Home for Good, which is just this kind of new startup little charity run out of a you know a, a shared office space and right. some volunteers and a couple of staff and and it was so lovely to be able to say look we're here um because you know god cares about the vulnerable he cares about the orphan he cares about the widow and he cares about the stranger and um you know what an opportunity and I guess it was out of that experience. I went to Lebanon to visit um, refugee camps there to figure out what kind of reception we'd need to provide in the UK to make this kind of transition possible. Um, we got really involved in kind of um, a whole bunch of uh, projects with um, Save the Children and UNICEF and, and our government. Um, and, and, then, and then the Brexit conversation happened. Um, so the UK's decision whether we're going to remain part of the European Union or whether we're going to leave. And suddenly immigration became a toxic issue for the government and they basically backtracked all the promises they made about receiving refugee children. Mm. Um, and instead the language shifted again. So we heard language about plague of migrants, swarm of immigrants um, and big posters that would go up on billboards and it would have thousands of people at the gates of the UK and, and the fear was that we were going to be overrun. And, and, and what happened was an increase in xenophobia, fear of the stranger. And it was in that context that I really thought I needed to write the God is Stranger book mm -hmm. um, because the Bible's got a lot to say about the stranger. And we teach our children from a young age to fear the stranger. But actually, um, statistically, sadly, um, the stranger is the least most likely person to harm you. Um, most domestic violence, most murders, most um, child abuse cases are perpetrated by people that the children knew already. Uh, family, friends, other people that have access to them through um, you know, school networks or sports uh, connections. The stranger is very unlikely to be a cause of harm to you and your family. Although um, you know, those are the cases that make it onto the TV news. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Bible's got a lot to say, not about fear of the stranger, xenophobia. It's got a lot to say about love of the stranger. Um, you know, you don't have to look very far. Matthew 25, we said again, Jesus says, I was a stranger mm -hmm. and you welcomed me in. Luke 10, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, what is going on there? There should have been fear of the stranger, but actually all you see is love of the stranger. Mm -hmm. And it's all in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan is saying, anyone that is in need and you have the capacity to help is your neighbor. And so this book is trying to to offer the church a call back to biblical principles about how we do welcome and hospitality for the most in need. And it's actually as we welcome the stranger, as it says in Hebrews, when we welcome the stranger, who knows if we're not entertaining angels in disguise. And so that's I'm trying to bring and I'm I'm you know I'm not party political I'm not trying to get people to vote for anyone in an election you know one particular party or another but I am asking us to have a biblical view of our responsibility to our families for sure to our neighbors for sure but to the stranger and to the refugee as well yeah and it's clear um from you know some of the videos you put out some of the different things that I've that I've been able to see and and through the book that you understand I mean and I know there's people listening to this but say yeah but what about terrorism what about this what about that what about safety of our borders what about the fact that there's so many kids in our own country that need to be adopted and fostered um all these all these arguments that are on the other side that you know have some validity right but at the end of the day sure. when you put it up against the gospel when you put it up against the scripture and the scriptural yeah. truths, it, it's, it's, and I, I think, can you speak to that too? I, I know that you said it, I can't remember whether it was, whether it was in the book or one of the videos, but you talked about how, in fact, when you look at, think about vetting, that mm. when you look at it with the upside down kingdom, it's a completely different analysis. Can you know what I'm talking about there? Can you speak to that? Oh, remind me, what did you mean? Well, you basically, you, you talked about how when you look at vetting and, and you talk about that if you really look through scriptural lens, you mm. would welcome in the worst. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. That's right. So it, it is interesting that when we think about immigration, um, and we do it in the UK, and we do it in the US, we try to bring the cream of the world to us, don't we? So we're looking for people with high skills, high transferable uh, abilities, great qualifications, ability to earn. Um, and, and yet, in Corinthians, um, Paul was asking um, the church there, hey, guys, before you were saved, how many of you were influential? You know, how many of you had power or authority? Actually, we, we were the worst and God welcomed us in. Um, it was in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our back record, if, if you like, that God welcomed us in. It, it's the same with the adoption story. We find it in the UK. Um, most adopters, and it's true for many Christians as well as those outside of the church, um, only come to adoption uh, because of infertility. And when you come because of infertility, you really want a baby. And you don't just want any old baby. You want a perfect baby. And if possible, a baby that looks like you. Um, and so you've got these, these criteria um, before you're willing to offer love and acceptance to somebody. But flip that around. You know, when God adopted us, um, what were the criteria? Did we have to be young? No. Did we have to be perfect physically? No. Uh, did, did we have to have no emotional baggage? No. We were sinners and Christ welcomed us in. So we have an upside down kingdom that welcomes um, the least and the last and the lost. You know, think, think about the, the parable of the great banquet. Um, Jesus says, look, go out into the highways and byways and find the, the poor and the lame and compel them to come in. These are the people that are going to share my feast. So I, I think we do need a different mindset. Now, of course, you know, we're not asking people to be stupid and to ignore wisdom, which is a great gift from God. Um, but I think we need an overall posture change towards the outsider. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to invite everyone to, again, read this book. There's, there's a great story about uh, Krisha's mom inviting in a stranger um, hmm. that is just, it's, you know, it's worth the price of the book, um, especially hmm. since it reminds me of my wife who often invites in strangers. And oh, cool. When you do it, um, and I've watched my wife do it more than I would, um, I'd probably be more like Chris, who you, I won't tell the whole story because I want you to actually have a reason <laughs> to read the book. But he was talking about sure. barricading his door, um, sleeping yeah. that night. And I sometimes feel, uh, you know, similar feelings with my wife. But mm. when you hear the stories mm. that come out of it, when you see what God can do through those situations, it changes everything. Yeah. And I think that that is something that, um, you know, again, again, it's something that I think that we can all learn from those people who, and Craig Greenfield, our mutual friend was on, was on the podcast mm. and he talks about his subversive, you know, hospitality, the subversive Jesus that we serve. And when he just yeah. invites people in, what can happen? And, and that's mm. something that, you know, you talk about in the chapter that we're going to focus on. I want to, I want to kind of dig in a little bit deeper to the chapter in the book. This is just an example yeah. of how you take a, a book. I mean, Isaiah, massive book, but you bring it down to kind of its, 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 its essence in, in, in this chapter. Um, it's particularly as it relates to this, but I'm going to just, mm. I'm going to want to just quote three, three, three quotes from that chapter and hear from you okay. about hospitality and, and really what, what these, uh, what these, what these quotes and what the book of Isaiah can really teach us about hospitality mm. and the biblical response to the refugee crisis. So these three quotes are, Jesus summarized the whole of Old Testament law in a single combined com- commandment, to love God and love your neighbor. True worship must always be about both welcoming God who is stranger and welcoming God in the stranger. And the second one is intimacy with those suffering injustice leads to an intimacy with God. And the last quote is, true hospitality is a virtuous circle. Now, these are all related, um, but can you just mm. speak to that and how the book of Isaiah really teases those out um, throughout the book and what it's got to do with us yeah. today? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the interesting thing for me, you know, going, you know, my tribal background, it was all about a relationship with God and the, the other bits were really unimportant. Um, and that was true of Isaiah. You know, the only bit of Isaiah that really mattered was Isaiah 53, um, which is the prophecy about Jesus and, you know, how he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it does open your eyes uh, to see, you know, how everything that took place on the crucifixion was foreshadowed uh, in scriptures. It's an amazing passage. But guess what? Isaiah's got plenty more chapters. And and for me, that the, the, challenge, the challenge of Isaiah begins in its first chapter. Uh, where Isaiah is told by God to bring some pretty heavy words of challenge to Israel. Um, And uh, I don't know about you, but I I wonder if in your church, after the worship band have finished their set, and, uh, you know, it's been a great time, great guitars, or um, if you're more orchestral, or whether you use organs, or whatever, you've had the most amazing music you could imagine. Uh, And then God says... um, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you rulers of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat fattened animals. I have no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Uh, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. And you go, God, hold on. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> you, you were the one that invented the sacrifice system. You told us to sacrifice. You told us to fast. You told us to pray. But you're saying you don't want any more of that? And the problem was um, Israel had turned the worship of God into a ritual, an external ritual that had no impact on the way that they cared for the needy. And so God says, stop what you're doing. Wash your hands of, of the blood that's on it and instead defend the cause of the widow and the fatherless. Um, and you go, OK, Chris, that's just Isaiah 1. That doesn't count. That's just one verse. But Isaiah 58, um, God is talking to his people about fasting um, and he says, you know, is this what I call a fast um, that you would just kind of nod your head and, you know, tear your clothes? And, uh, you know, but on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked feasts. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Uh, is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? And instead, God says, hello, no, 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 this is what I call a fast. It's to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer, uh, backslash refugee, with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Those verses should sound familiar mm -hmm. because this is the source material for Matthew 25. He's, he's reciting this again mm -hmm. and he's saying, look, worship means nothing. There's no point in fasting. I don't know about you. Of all the spiritual disciplines, I find fasting one of the most difficult. Mm -hmm. The idea of going without food is tough enough for me between meals, let alone going without <laughs> meals so that I would pursue God. But God's saying, look, I'm not interested. You can do the fasting, but if it doesn't mean you actually care for the poor it's a waste of time mm. and so isaiah's got this going all the way through it this this call for genuine worship that moves beyond ritual um and you know we know that you know if, if you're a fan of the godfather movies you know that the, the the mafia turn up for church turning up for church singing a few songs nodding your head reading the bible that is that the mafia are great at that it's what you do in the rest of your week that matters isn't it yeah that's fantastic um there's a, there's another story. I, I want I want to get into kind of the practical right now with the refugees, and I and I think we've talked about some of the practical with the the foster you know caring for kids in foster care, um, but I, I know that we do have a global audience here, and, and I know that some of the people listening in are in places that are deeply affected by the refugee crisis, have refugee camps in your countries. Um, can you share the story? You know, just one one man doing some work in in a refugee camp. Daniel, there's a story that you tell about. Daniel, a pastor who started a ministry in a refugee camp, in one of the videos that you've put out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew you can ask me that. What's that? I wish I could remember it now. Um, okay. Well, you know what? So it, it, is, yeah. this, is this the guy in Erbil? Um, I believe so. Or we believe, could just direct. Yeah. Well, want to direct people to the video? Yeah, How do you want to do it? I can direct people to the video because. I think this is this is a great tangible way that people can get can get involved, and I will mm -hmm. I will put that video on the on the show notes yeah. for this because you yeah. definitely want to see that, and you definitely want to see how yeah. the impact. And I think it goes to all of this, right? The impact yeah. one person can have on a life that can then right. impact so many others. And and this well, is let, a let really, me tell you another story into that space, yeah, and we please. can reference Daniel as well. So okay, so so I came across the story of Daniel. Um, 
through a, a group called Open Doors, who are doing just tremendous work in some of the real fragile states of our world. They're particularly looking out for the needs of Christians who are caught in conflict, but they've been uh, assisting um, refugee camps. And uh, they told me about this guy, Daniel, who is in Erbil, a really, really dangerous place, a big kind of refugee population there. And he just builds this kind of ministry. He is a refugee himself. He just builds this ministry, welcoming in vulnerable refugees, giving them a space where they can relax, filling a tent with color and, and toys and games and just just him being hospitable in the middle of inhospitality was just incredible. Um, and there's another family I know in the UK. They were moved when they saw the images on the television. So they dropped what they were doing. They went and volunteered in Greece, pulling people off of um, uh, you know, out of the water onto dry land. Uh, they spent a couple of weeks doing that and they felt there was more they wanted to do. So they went home and they converted their house into a welcome centre. So as soon as a child um, or a young adult is recognised as a refugee in their area, whether they've discovered him uh, as, as he's been smuggled in by people smugglers into the UK or whether he's been brought in uh, through the resettlement programme, instead of going to some kind of um, asylum centre or kind of refugee institution, they've turned their house into a welcome centre. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was standing uh, with this uh, lady um, telling this story in the House of Lords about a month ago. Um, and one of the baronesses, a member of the House of Lords, uh, then told her story about how she, as an atheist, had been visiting all the refugee centres in the UK. Um, and she just came across Christian after Christian after Christian that was demonstrating this hospitality. And that was the reason she became a Christian, because she saw Christians living out their faith and then loving people with just incredible generosity. So I'm I'm in such a privileged position. I get to travel. I get to see amazing things that Christians are doing for refugees. And they're not all Westerners. I was in Lebanon. I went to visit a church, a small church in Lebanon. Now, I don't know if you know the Christian community in Lebanon are, are relatively a small minority of the population. But they took their church building and they turned it into a school every day. Three separate schools meet in their building. Building, mm. uh, one after another, they, you know, like three hours of school, and like somewhere in the region, of 500 children are being helped every day to learn because most of the refugee kids have been out of school for four years um, and just, you know, sitting around bored out their heads in refugee camps. And so Christians are the ones that have stepped up and offered hospitality. So. Um, Phil, there's just amazing things going on all around the world as Christians live out this message. And it's been a privilege to try and tell some of their stories in the book uh, and in the videos we've been making. Yeah, absolutely. No, and it is good stuff. Um, so can you just give our listeners, you know, one or two things, especially, you know, those who are listening, whether it's in the UK, the US, um, other Western countries, just ways that we can practically get involved with the re refugee crisis, both locally and globally? Sure. I would say there's a, let me give you three. There's probably loads more that you could do. Um, and one is, I think if you're living in a democratic country, um, you need to use your voice to speak up for those that do not have a voice. Um, 
you know, again, I'm, I don't want to get party political. I don't think there's a particular Christian party that you need to vote for. I think we need to speak truth to power. I think that means winsomely, graciously, but confidently speaking up on, on behalf of those that are most in need. Um, and that can be challenging because it could put you at odds with the party that you would normally vote for. They might take a different view on these things. But you need to use your voice um, to speak up on behalf of others. In the UK, we're in the middle of an election season right now, and most of the electioneering is promises made by parties to make our lives better. It's almost like they're trying to buy our vote yeah. by telling us, if you vote for this party, our taxes will be less. Or if you vote for this party, then you won't have to pay so much tuition for your uh, kids to go to university. And I want to say, look, me voting needs to be like every other decision that a Christian is called to make, which is not putting our own needs first, it's putting the needs of others first and seeking the glory of God first. And so if we don't speak up on behalf of those that are vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, who will? Mm. Um, and I'm not asking you to kind of give up on your, you know, your evangelical um, identity. I'm saying let's live out the message of the Bible as God shows particular concern for those people. So let's use our voice. Mm -hmm. um, I think in some countries um, you are not going to be receiving refugees because actually that might not be the best place for them to go. And so you might want to be looking to, for ways to support um, Christians or agencies that are working in the countries where refugees are going. You know, most refugees um, go to neighboring countries. So most refugees from Syria have not made it to Canada or America or even the UK. Most of them made it to Lebanon uh, or to Jordan or to Turkey. Um, and actually those countries need assistance in um, offering help and hospitality to those people. And you could support a Christian charity uh, that's doing that, whether that's Open Doors or World Relief. Um, but what I'm hearing at the moment is there's a massive need for business investment in those countries so that someone might create businesses that will help refugees start to earn a living in those haven countries that they've gone to. And then if their countries then open up again, and um, you know, imagine the Syrian conflict ends, um, most people are going to want to go home again. They want to go to the place of their birth. Mm. And if they've got no skills, if they've got no business to take back there, it's going to be so much harder to see those countries get back on their feet again. So it may be God is encouraging you. You might be a Christian businessman or woman. Um, whether you can use your business skills to help create local business for those refugees um, in those haven countries. That would be amazing. And the third one, and, and, and you know, we, we always leave it to last often, but um, prayer, you know, we, we need to pray um, both for um, that, some, that, that when people come out of their countries, they might have an opportunity to experience the love of God. Some of the countries that are going through these uh, terrible times have been quite closed to the gospel. Um, and I'm hearing story after story of Muslim people who have been welcomed uh, by Christians in Lebanon uh, or in Jordan or in Turkey and, and are actually finding faith. Um, so we need to pray that more of that will continue. But we also need to pray that these wars would cease and people can then again live in security and stability. Yeah, those are great. Great. That's some great advice. Um, and I definitely encourage everyone to get involved in in some or all of those ways, potentially, uh, particularly the prayer right now. Be praying for how God will get you involved, because once you start doing that, he'll show you. Well, now I think you out there see uh, why I was so excited to share uh, Krish's wisdom with you. 
Um, it just, again, never ceases to amaze me the great work that is going on, much of which we never, we never hear about. And so I know we're going to be hearing more and more about that throughout this series. Um, but Karen, what, what in particular stuck out to you, um, you know, hearing this really for the first time when, when you listen and prep for this conversation? Yeah, it was a great, um, you know, hour or so for me to listen and uh, just hear about Chris and, and learn more about him and everything that he's doing globally and obviously in the UK as well. I think for me, um, one of the things that was most Im- influential and impacting was hearing him talk about the difference between um, social justice in the church versus evangelism and, and connecting people with God. That hit home for me and just a part of my story growing up in um, the South here in America in a really conservative evangelical Christian background where I feel like a lot of my story resonated with his of only hearing kind of certain pieces of the Bible over and over again and really learning about that when I was in college and grad school and honestly like in an embarrassing way kind of I didn't even think I know what social justice was when I first started college (laughs) just like what is this piece Um, so yeah just hearing um, him talk through the importance of what is our responsibility biblically to our neighbor and and to uh, strangers that was really powerful for me Phil yeah, I think that's something that we often um, lose sight of, really, is the, as he's talked about, we need to read the whole Bible, right? Yeah. And I think that going through it, that's something that his book, God is Stranger, does. And I, I strongly recommend it when you're able to get it, when you're able to pick it up um, around the world, grab it, because it really talks through this. He goes through the books of the Bible and studies them and says, you know, the, the God is Stranger, as we talk about in the interviews, is it really double entendre? And, and so it's something that, that God, he does work in strange ways, but he also, you know, he talks, he shows up as a stranger in different things. And so that, that Isaiah conversation was just a taste of what comes out in that book. And I I was just, just really floored reading the book. Um, how, how Chris is able to really lay it out there in a way that is, is easy to understand, but it's, it's still really, really deep. And like you said, you know, we, we have to understand what it looks like to fully live out this, this call. Um, and what does that look like in our world today in a crazy, crazy, broken, insane world? Um, what does that look like? I mean, just this last week to hear about North Korea and the just, just insanity. I mean, that's going on. And then it, breeds more insanity from other people. And then it just, it balloons. So how can we live that third way? How can we live that gospel way? And I think that, that this conversation really, really talks a lot about that. Um, and I, I get excited to talk more about it as we talk to different, different folks. Um, so anything else? Yeah. You know, for, for you guys listening, you know, I do a lot of work with families who've grown through foster care or adoption. And so his, his um, story or his discussion um, about, I think, I think you asked the question, Phil, of like, and about unvetted people or unvetted persons and him just describing um, the upside down kingdom and how um, that relates to sometimes families who choose to grow through foster care or adoption and oftentimes what that looks like when families are choosing to grow their families through foster care or adoption because of infertility. And I I think that maybe it was even the first time I heard something like this was um, when I was listening to Dr. Moore speak probably over a decade ago of just um, talking through, you know, that 
those of us that God calls to himself, like we aren't all shiny and pottery barn sparkly. Dr. Moore didn't say that. That's my version of it. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, we are broken and, and we are the ones that are, are vile and we are not, um, we're not perfect. And that in the same way, looking through our, our view of the stranger through that lens, I really appreciated that and uh, definitely resonated with me and, and my connection with uh, the adoption community. Yeah, and I think what you'll find throughout this entire series, um, next week we're going to be able to have Scott Arbiter with uh, World Relief. He's the president. He's going to be able to share with us, um, kind of take what Chris was talking about to, to the next to the next level as far as the, the details of like what's really going on in the orphan crisis or in the refugee crisis, what our role is in it, um, but also how, you know, sometimes when things are politicized, when things are in the media and when things are twisted and turned and, and just really brought out with, with, you know, agendas. Sometimes you don't hear the whole story. Sometimes you don't think about it in the ways of scripture. It's really easy to get out of, you know, what is the, you know, what is this real message? And I think when he talked about it, that if we really look at the gospel and you think about it, like we're going to welcome in the worst of the worst. Yeah. Now there's still wisdom. We have to have wisdom. And that's what you're going to hear throughout there. There are two sides to this. So I don't, before people, you know, turn this off and say, I can't believe Phil's saying that we just got to let everyone in. That's not what we're saying. That's not what anybody's saying. Um, but at the same time, as Chris said, unfortunately, the reality is most of the people that are hurting us in any way are people we know. They're not the stranger. And I think too, Phil, like in that too, he's also saying, God, from a biblical perspective, God's still calling us to find something valuable mm-hmm. within that person. Um, when he used his example, right. I loved it, of he's a biter. <laughs> um, when he was referencing, um, you know, I, I wish I could remember exactly what he said. I loved I loved the way he said it with his accent, too. Of That was just like an mm-hmm. inadequate description mm-hmm. of a human being or an inadequate description of a human person, of just directing us, even in those instances where we are um, really landing in a wisdom stance and, and we're coming to a conclusion that may even be like not welcoming a child into your home because of like a very reasonable and, and wise stance of this wouldn't be healthy for the child or it wouldn't be healthy for my family, but right. still finding value within that child or finding value within that teenager or rightly so finding value within that refugee of finding additional supports or other ways that we can support other organizations. Yeah. So I, you know, with this, as we as we talk about, we're really wanting you all to get the rest of the story, so to speak, and to really understand all sides of this conversation, what it looks like in your life, what it looks like in your community, what it looks like for your church, what it looks like for just really locally and globally. So, um, like I said, we got uh, Scott Arbiter next week. Um, I definitely hope that you join us then as well. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the download. We appreciate it. We're excited and thankful to be able to be a part of the conversation where we get to join together and discuss and and find ways that we can help take better and better care of orphaned and vulnerable children. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.